Welcome to All Places Together. Here we believe that our lives are connected to one another and rooted in God's inclusive and expansive love for diverse creation. I'm Colleen Montgomery, the pastor of All Places Together and your podcast host. Wherever you are, whoever you are, however you are, take a deep breath. Today's episode is After the Storm. We've all seen and heard heartbreaking stories about people whose lives are turned upside down by natural disasters. Whether it's a hurricane, earthquake, flood, or tornado, lives are lost, homes are destroyed, and the people who survive have so much to work through. As we take in whatever the story of the day is, we may find ourselves asking, how can I help in the face of such deep need? Today's guest is someone who works each and every day to support the survivors of natural disasters, especially those who have long-term unmet needs. Her faith, knowledge, and compassion make an impact on those she works with every day. And now we get to experience that as well. Today, I am so pleased to welcome Julia Menzo to the All Places Together podcast. Julia is the Director of Community Outreach at Liberty Lutheran Services, a social ministry organization in Pennsylvania. There, she coordinates resources for long-term disaster recovery to support survivors with funding, volunteers, and case management. Julia has a master's degree in natural resource economics from Rutgers University. She has two grown children who live in Southern California, and she likes to spend outside time with her fiancé, and she especially likes to play tennis. Welcome to All Places Together, Julia. We're so glad you're here. Thanks. It's great to be here. So the focus of our conversation today is to explore questions about how we help in the face of great need. And of course, there are so many types of great need. We see that every day in many different ways. And so specifically today, Julia is here uh, to talk through with us what it looks like uh, to help in the face of disaster response and relief care. So in our preparation conversation, Julia, you shared with me about how you first started providing disaster relief. And I'd love to begin our time together today with you sharing that story with the rest of the All Places Together community. Like many people um, who are involved in this work, I got involved after Hurricane Katrina. It's still the benchmark for a lot of people in the disaster world um, as far as what was their impetus to get engaged in this work. So it was 2005, and like others, I saw the pictures on TV and people on roofs and on highways and going to the Superdome and just feeling compelled by that visual uh, expression of just pain, you know, in people's eyes and their hearts, carrying kids through water and those kinds of things. So just, I just felt compelled like many people to go. So I, it was not until about seven months later that I did get down to Mississippi and was at one of the camps in the area. And I was able to help with rebuilding and repair for a week. And then there were five additional trips over the course of the next several years that I took as a volunteer. So that's how I got engaged myself. Wow. So you, I imagine, got to see some level of progression or healing over the course of all of those trips? Yeah, absolutely. I think I was surprised. The first trip was eight 
April 2006, so several months after Hurricane Katrina. I guess I was surprised when we were sent to the first house we were supposed to work on and it looked like there had been no change. And I couldn't imagine, like, it looked like it had still been the recent storm. And I couldn't imagine, you know, something happening in my neighborhood or my house and that it would be however many months later and that there would still be debris in the backyard and the shed still wouldn't be fixed and the basement would still have mold in it. So that was the, that was a real wake up call as far as how long disaster recovery takes, even just the first trip down. But then over time and the trips, the subsequent trips started seeing things go from debris removal and mold remediation to things like hanging drywall back up and helping people move into new homes and the painting and and that kind of thing, Hang, stringing electrical wire. So getting people from kind of really unsafe conditions to back to a normal house. But it take it it was years to get to that point. So how through that process of of those trips and that work and that witnessing, um, how did that experience impact your faith and and impact you to kind of make the shift into doing this professionally? I didn't think that I would be doing this for this long after um, that volunteer work, but there was an opportunity that became available um, here closer to home um, after Katrina, because all over the country, there was a move from all sorts of organizations to increase resiliency to disaster to disasters. Um, so I'm part of the Lutheran Disaster Response Network um, in my role at Liberty. And the Lutheran Disaster Response Network out of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, they were uh, expanding their efforts. So they started uh, providing resources for positions all across the country. And that's how I got involved locally here in Eastern Pennsylvania through some of their grants that they had to increase kind of the capacity to respond to disasters around the country. So I was didn't I mean I didn't expect to be doing this and I thought it would be a short time but that I would be doing it but then the longer I was involved the more I saw that it was related to my background in natural resource economics understanding how how we lo- use land impacts you know how a community can weather you know absorb a disaster like if you're building homes on wetlands they're not going to be the the most resilient area and we also you know started to see ties to social justice, you know, in regard to where people who had less means were on areas that were less safe to live, and then they would be more impacted by disaster. So it was all tying back to kind of my land use economics background. And the more I've been involved in it, the more I was interested in staying and all of the really unique aspects of, of this work. And so that's, and still here today, um, some 15, almost 20 years later. I think that's so amazing the way that your your academic background, like what your schooling is in, has like God has been able to use that in this really incredible way. That's not the reason you got that degree to begin with, but like it is so informative to to the work of caring for people after they've experienced disasters. Yeah, absolutely. I I never envisioned doing disaster recovery work as part of my career, but it fits in my mind perfectly. So I'm really happy to be doing this work. And you've, uh, my next question is something that you've already 
begun to talk about too. And it's that like the work that you did immediately following Katrina that, you know, you're showing up this house that, to this house that hasn't been touched for months, um, made, made an impact on that family. And then you've shared like on your subsequent trips, how you began to do different types of work. And it's just, you've already made it clear, right? That these needs persist past the time when many volunteers have returned home, right? When the video cameras have gone away, when the reporters have like long since filed the stories. Um, So how long does it really take to recover from the disaster? It can take months and years to recover from, uh, from disasters. And uh, here in Pennsylvania, we are currently responding actively to two events. Um, one was from Tropical Storm East in 2020, so that's three years ago, and then also wow. from Hurricane Ida in 2021. So sometimes the, the length of time it takes is for many reasons. Sometimes people don't realize that they are eligible for assistance or that anyone be would be interested in helping them. So they don't even know to alert anyone that they still have needs. So actually finding people is extremely difficult, especially people who are vulnerable or marginalized because in many circumstances, they feel like they're forgotten to begin with. So this isn't going to, this isn't nothing new. And then another factor in the length of time this can all take is if people do um, have homes and they have insurance, it could take months to get through insurance claims. If it's a federally declared disaster, there's a process with FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, that uh, can take years to get through to determine whether um, a family is going to get support from FEMA to help repair or rebuild their home. So it can take a long time just to figure out if someone's eligible to help to find who they are. And then there's a whole process of case management determining, you know, how can we help people collectively? Uh, When I say we, I mean partners in this work? How can we as Lutherans, how can we as volunteers help people recover? um, And how do we prioritize given that the need is always greater than there are resources to to meet the need? Oh, I just like feel that last sentence in my heart, right? That the need is always greater. And another thing that stuck out from what you just shared is something that I've known, but would love to be able to like learn from more from you about is that the people who oftentimes people who are already marginalized in the world tend to be more greatly affected by natural disasters and by other types of events like this. So um, can you maybe speak to like what those particular needs are or um, a little bit more in depth about why that is the case? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of reasons why we can document that the poor get poorer and the rich get richer following disasters in you know, for anything from where you're actually living. So again, if you're living in an unsafe area, like as far as like prone to flooding, you're going to find people who have less means, most likely living in low lying areas, um, areas prone to flooding. So, so first of all, like just geographically, there's more, there's higher risk. For example, the neighborhood we're working in, in 
Philadelphia right now is a neighborhood near the Philadelphia airport. It was built on wetlands. There's um, a confluence of two streams in the neighborhood that are blocked by from getting to the Delaware River by a large landfill. Oof. So that that community um, through urban renewal decades ago, largely African-American um, was kind of th- things were buildings, houses were built where it did not make sense to build buildings and houses, apartment buildings, single family homes, uh, row homes. And so that area is prone to flooding. And that's the area we're working on from 2020 right now. So first, first off, you know, you're in an area that might be less secure, resilient to begin with to weathering an event. And then other reasons why those who are marginalized prior to the storm might have a more harsh um, reality following a storm are simply because they're not necessarily getting information. Um, They may not speak English. There's lots of reasons that the help that's available isn't, that messaging isn't getting to them. So there's also just kind of a feeling in some of the communities we work in that no one's going to help them anyway. So there's not really, you know, sometimes that public outcry of we need help here. Um, We see that uh, a lot. We also see, especially during COVID, where people, government agencies used to go out and do on-site inspections. They just would send one email asking people if there was damage in their community. And if you didn't respond to the email, like, and one email, the, 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 the state disaster assessors were sending, you know, maybe it was more than one, but it was not like email was the outreach method of choice. But yeah, there wasn't like someone on the streets in the community right. walking and talking right. and networking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there was um, technological reasons why people aren't getting assistance. And then if you don't have insurance, if you don't have flood and home, you know, a lot of sometimes we found this was after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. And it was also similar in some of the neighborhoods we're working in in Philadelphia, that families have been in the same house for generations. So they own the house outright, but the deed might not be in their name. The like the transfer of ownership may not have happened. Um, and then without having a mortgage, because it's in your, it's been in the family for so long, there's not a need for help, homeowners insurance. And then they don't have flood insurance either. So there's no, ins- in many cases, there's families that don't have up-to-date insurance to cover costs of flooding because it, they're weighing the cost of, you know, paying for kids' food or whatever with paying really high insurance rates. So they'll opt to not spend the money on insurance, but then you have a situations where families um, are suffering. And in a lot of cases with renters and landlords, some of the issue is related to the broader affordable housing crisis. We talk to a lot of survivors who are low income, oftentimes women with um, single women with kids, they're in an apartment, we do outreach and, and locate them and they say, yes, we, we do still have issues related to Hurricane Ida, my washer and dryer aren't working and I, we haven't had heat since Hurricane Ida. And this is just, you know, this past winter we did this outreach. So it's a year wow. and a half after the storm and they still don't have heat. And you'll say, well, why can't you get your landlord to fix it? Well, they'll say we tried, but the landlord refuses and essentially we have no other options because I can't find another place to live. So because of the affordable housing um, issues, so they stay where they are and are heating their house with, uh, you know, 
um, the oven or electric space heaters and, and those kinds of things. So um, those are the kinds of needs we're seeing. A lot of people that still don't have heat, a lot of people that don't have um, functioning electrical equipment, working with landlords who are not willing to make repairs or to clean up mold. So those are some of the needs we're finding with some of the families we're working with. As you're describing that, and and as you have added like each layer of challenge and like the intersections of all of the reasons why disaster relief can be so complicated. Like I'm just like, I just feel like the weight of that increase. Like if you are working full time and and you don't maybe have time to call the person during working hours or you don't have internet so you can only maybe use data on your phone and like can you get through all of your emails or like balancing what bills you want to pay like there's so much to this beyond just uh like cleaning up the debris like getting the branches getting the tree off the roof getting the mud off the walls like there's so many layers to this exactly yes it's very many, many layers. And, and then there's a lot of families who get exhausted by the process and give up, which, you know, you I don't blame them year later. And it's, it's, um, it's just really sad to see. Yeah, it is. So, so now that we kind of have a, at least a snippet of the fuller picture, um, mm-hmm. how does your organization and how does your current work come alongside these survivors who are experiencing unmet needs and and how do you help them through this recovery and relief process? Sure. We as Lutheran Disaster Response, at least how we work locally here, Lutheran Disaster Response looks different all over the country, but we work with our partners um, in many different expressions of disaster recovering agencies from places that names you'll recognize like the Salvation Army and American Red Cross to smaller disaster response organizations that you might not recognize. One that we're working right now is with is the Elevated Studio, but other faith-based and secular groups too, like UCC Disaster Ministries, Presbyterian Disaster Assistance, those kinds of organizations. So we work together as part of something that's called the VOAD, Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster. And through that network, um, one of the benefits of working as like part of that is that we all agree on points of consensus for service delivery. So, for example, faith-based organizations, you know, we don't proselytize when we're out. We don't, sure, you know. Yes, you're um, there to help, one. not to come to right. our church. Right. So there's there's points of consensus for all different aspects, from case management to how we rebuild. Like one of the points of consensus for rebuilding is to always look with an eye for mitigation. So, for example, in uh, the Eastwick neighborhood of Philadelphia, we're trying to raise all the mechanical equipment at least several feet off the ground. So when the next one comes, even though it's just a Band-Aid, it's something that's improving the situation and not just putting the family in harm's way again. So we work together as the VOAD. And one of the benefits of that is that we have unique relationships with emergency management, um, including FEMA, where we can ask for um, direction or information on where survivors are. So it helps us identify where survivors are. We can sometimes even get data points on folks so we can do outreach. Then we, you know, this is a process that takes 
months in itself because of privacy requirements. But we work to identify survivors, and then we reach out to them through a process of just trying to understand, you know, what are what do they see as their greatest needs? Where could they, where would they like assistance? And can we either provide that assistance or work with them to kind of meet their own individual goals or create resources that might help meet their needs? So we work together to do that. And that involves the case manager kind of understanding the whole kind of profile of the family, how many kids, what's the income, what resources does the family have, what are local resources that could help them. And then if there's, in the case of a renter, a landlord dispute, like we talked about before, one of our partners is a legal aid organization, and they hired someone to be um, a lawyer specifically for Hurricane Ida survivors. So we will refer that person to that lawyer, and they um, will will rep the, represent the family in court and things like that. So that's really a unique, I think, piece that we've taken on for this response, which I'm really proud of. Um, but if it's a homeowner, we'll look at the kind of situation of not just the profile of the family, but what kind of repairs need to be done. And then we'll match that with, okay, which organization has funding for that? Who has volunteers? What are the skills of the volunteers? When is the homeowner home? When is the volunteers available? Try to figure out volunteer housing. Um, do we need a contractor to do some of the work? So it's bringing all of those people pieces together to help then get the repairs made. And again, that can take that can take a long time too. Just I think any homeowner knows right now that getting a contractor in to do work is really difficult. So um, you can imagine that in a situation like this where it's extra layers of complication between, you know, we're hiring the contractor, but the, it's for the, on behalf of the homeowner, it can even just get a little bit even more tricky, but um, we, we stay the course and we really try to get those needs met. It may not, it's not immediate and it's a marathon, but we um, we're really proud of the work we do to get people back into a safe, secure home. I mean, and it sounds more like an obstacle course like an obstacle course and a marathon combined. <laughs> definitely not a sprint. Definitely like definitely not right. just a simple right. fix. Um and I think the beauty in that is is the one of the one of the beautiful pieces is being able to get to know that family and like really understand like what their particular needs are because it's not a one size fit all. Uh, situation at all. That's right. Um, and that's where our case managers are really key to this. They walk a really fine line between, you know, kind of taking on the issues that the family's facing themselves and trying to take a step back and empowering the family. But they certainly, the case managers really take to heart the work that they do and find it, I think, very rewarding, but really difficult. And one of the things we we really try to do is look out for the spiritual and emotional care of our case managers. So we provide um, some opportunities for them to just debrief, to talk about what they're going through as far as like the challenges that their families they're working with are facing. Um, I love that image of you as 
I mean, like the employer, but like the system as a whole, like pouring back into the case managers that you're caring for them. Because I can only imagine the amount of like particular knowledge that these case managers have and the relationships that they have, like with contractors and with maybe different ordinances and different like living locations and like all of these kind of tips and tricks and contacts, the things that they need to know that would be impossible to write, to write down and transfer on to someone else who might come after them in this position. And so the wisdom of caring for your case manager so that they can continue to do the work um, when they really want to, to try to like avoid that burnout for Mm -hmm. them, like that's just, that's huge and really, really lovely. And I mean, a large part of what they do is listen and they can be on the phone or meeting with someone for hours to hear the story over and over again. So, and that's what I mean, the, another component of the disaster recovery that I didn't mention aside from the swinging hammer and pulling out drywall is the spiritual and emotional care component, not just for the case managers, but also for the survivors. Oh, of course. also try to provide um, some things for survivors. Right now, one of the things we have is a, a program called the Keystone Disaster Spiritual Care Network, and it's a call call line that survivors can call just to talk to somebody. So it takes a little pressure off the case managers, but also it's trained folks who um, know to, how to just listen and help other people think through their um, challenges ahead of them. Yeah, I I can imagine I have a very small sliver of training in disaster spiritual care from my seminary days and kind of just enough to know how much I don't know <laughs> about disaster spiritual care and and how that type of listening um, and making space and hearing those stories and the type of encouragement and being with those people, it's, it's very different than what uh, you might you know, do in kind of day-to-day spiritual care or spiritual direction. Off the record, was that person Storm Swain? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I went to seminary at Philly. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. Um, I want to just add something to what you just said. The I know that your listeners can't see the picture behind me, but it's um, the Three Kings. So that picture is from Dia de los Reyes. After Hurricane Maria, hundreds of people came from Puerto Rico to Philadelphia and the surrounding areas. So we ended up working um, with many families who um, came to stay with friends and family here. But after three weeks, could you know, or so out where they're welcome or landlord said you can't stay here anymore. So there was a big housing crisis for recent evacuees from Puerto Rico to Philadelphia, Lehigh Valley, other parts on the East Coast. And one of the spiritual emotional care things that we had uh, throughout that process was a festival for Dia de los Reyes, which is Three Kings Day. And we uh, there was a mural artist who came and did a project to paint the three kings with kids who are part of that community and that's just a visual like it was a print of that painting that those kids did but it was an awesome day that's that's another just example of spiritual emotional care that we you know we try to be creative and respond to the needs of the community whatever that might look like 
Yeah, maybe you can uh, snap a picture of that on your phone and I can share it on our social yeah, media. Happy feeds. to do that. That would be beautiful for folks to be able to see that, right? Because it's it's like you you lose because it's not only like have you lost your house, like you've also if you were relocating like that, you've lost your church, your faith community, like right. that building may also have been destroyed, which is like a whole mm-hmm. nother right layer mm-hmm. to all of this. Mm-hmm. That's right. So how could an individual or a community, like a faith community, get involved in helping to meet the long-term needs of these disaster survivors? That's a great question, and I appreciate you asking it. There's certainly opportunities to be involved how I was um, as a Katrina volunteer by uh, traveling somewhere else to do rebuilding and repair. You can learn those skills through Um, Even places like Appalachian Service Project or Habitat for Humanity, rebuilding and repairs, the the volunteer contribution is tremendous as far as uh, the the amount of money that's saved through volunteer labor, getting people back in homes and helping rebuild and repair. There's also ways closer to home that people can be involved in helping their own communities be more resilient to any kind of impact that happens in the community. Um, I think through doing this work for almost 20 years now, I've seen how those marginalized communities are more impacted by disaster and the disconnect between the services that are provided and how those are like advertised in the neighborhood and how the disc- there's a disconnect between what you know, the government or the suburban communities think that people should recover or should know about information and how people actually come to learn about information and recover their, on their own. Mm-hmm. So the more um, a community can learn about the needs that are very local on a day-to-day basis, I think that's, you know, one of the best things that um, an individual can do, like educate yourself on poverty in your own community, educate yourself on the needs of people who might have social vulnerabilities, like having some kind of access or functional need or not speaking English extremely well, people who might have been incarcerated. So anything that you can do to kind of educate yourself on or or build relationships even more so with people who might not have the same access to resources or kind of privilege that traditional middle class americans often have the more we can educate ourselves on how um how to you know be in relationship with all sorts of people the stronger um are we can be you know together as the great you know, the beloved community, I think, um, is I love that language. When I hear pastors preach on the beloved community, I think about how can we really know each other better and um, think about, you know, okay, I get information from the internet, I get it from social media, but not everyone gets their information that way. People might get it from a flyer in a grocery store or um, someone from a local church in a community that's impacted being there to kind of bring credibility to the government partners or the disaster responding agencies. But so think about how can we build relationships so that we can actually help people meet their own needs when something, whether it's, you know, flood or community violence or a train derailment impacts their community. So I'm I'm real strong on just trying to build relationships in your own communities, counties, neighborhoods, cities, those kinds of things. 
Yeah, because I think the reality of the intensity of natural disasters is going to increase. And then even what you just shared, like there's other types of disasters or violence that affects communities. And the more connected we are, the more aware we are of what's you know, happening in our neighborhoods to begin with, like the stronger we will be and more like what you're saying, more resilient to be able to respond to the things that are inevitably going to happen. Right. It's not just something that happens to people um, who live, you know, on the coasts who have hurricanes or who live in the Midwest and they have tornadoes like we all are going to be experiencing more intense weather and then also some of these other types of tragedies as well. Absolutely agree. Um, And it's any community you're in. The other thing I encourage churches to do when they ask me the question about, you know, what can we do to support disaster survivors is I think about, I ask them to think about what they do on a day-to-day basis. For example, my home church has a meal every Monday night that's a community meal open to anyone. So we um, serve as kind of the community meal for people who are homeless or food insecure for every Monday night. But it's also people who are coming to choir practice or who might be neighbors of the church who come over. So it's a community meal. I love so that. if that were to happen, you know, in the, in, if there was something to happen in our community that was quote, a disaster, whether it's a large apartment fire or some kind of community wide flooding, what could we just expand that ministry to three days a week for a short period of time, but what can we already, what can we do that we're already doing and just expand it? Like, how can you expand and contract, you know, when the disaster passes, but to try not to invent it, you know, reinvent the wheel or think of something new that you have to do. Just try to think of what you're already doing to serve the community and pivot it when something happens. That's kind of a, um, a stress on the community. How can you pivot your what you do on a day-to-day basis to serve those who might be impacted by whatever it is. So I, I, you know, that's what I try to, that's, I think it's a way that's not so uh, giving us all one more thing to do. Yeah. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Right. It's, and you don't have to take on something new, just do what you're already doing. Take that energy that you have, that compassion and, you know, you feel compelled to do something Just put more energy into some of the great things that you might already be doing. I love that. I know that a lot of congregations in in various ways, like during the pandemic, expanded some of the stuff that they were already doing, especially uh, what comes to mind is for like feeding ministries for school kids um, who weren't being fed at school because they were home from school and how they just, okay, for that, the remainder of that 2020 school year. They did a lot more to get food home for those few months and like that type of thing. So I think there's many there's many communities that probably now have a framework for this um, because of what we've been through with the COVID-19 pandemic. Yep. So as we've said a few different times during this conversation, this work is hard and it is heavy. And I am sure that there are days that really wear you down. And so I wonder here at the close of our time together, if there's a particular Bible story um, or verse that really like grounds you in this work, um, something that you lean on when it all feels really overwhelming. Um, I would say, you know, one of the things that I lean on is 
uh, aside from Bible verses and uh, is the community that I work with on a day-to-day basis. My partners in this work are tremendous. So they are really encouraging to me and we kind of have each other's backs. Um, But the other thing, I guess the Bible verse that comes to mind is the parable of the lost sheep. Which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Mm. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. So I, I think of that all the time because what we do, um, in disaster response and working with survivors, we know that no one else is looking for these folks at this point. So we, you know, it's that verse, we, we work hard to find those ones. And so that gives me, you know, um, inspiration, I guess, to keep on keeping on. I don't think I had thought of that, that story in terms of disaster response before you shared that. And it's just so beautiful. Like this idea of even like then may perhaps the other 99 were affected by the disaster, but they've moved on. They're in the safe place they've been taken care of. Um, but who is it that's still in the wilderness, that's still in that uncertain place and and going to find them and 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 listen to them, be with them and like find that way forward? You said it great. Yeah, <laughs> so beautiful. So one last kind of like helping people get connected thing. Um, are there particular websites or places that you would recommend people going if they would like to learn more or get connected with disaster response? And we'll be sure to share any links that you share in the show notes as well. One website is www.elca.org backslash LDR. And on that page, you can find out about how Lutheran Disaster Response is responding to events, not only in the United States, but all over the world, and different ways you can get involved um, by volunteering, by donating, by praying, um, but even just educating yourselves. And then another place I guess I'd recommend is looking for your state VOAD website. It's V-O-A-D. And particularly going to National VOAD, nvoad.org, to find out how organizations across the country and by region are working together to respond to disasters. Wonderful. And again, we will link those so that folks have a way to get connected and to continue to learn more. Well, thank you so much, Julia, for sharing your time and your experience and your compassion. You have given us um, hope and renewed energy um, for how we can respond in the face of great need. And we're so thankful for that. Thank you very much. You're a great storyteller. And that's what this is all about. Thank you. for those in the midst of storms from the Lutheran disaster response. Merciful God, when the storms rage and threaten to overtake us, awaken our faith to know the power of your peace. 
Deliver us from our fear and ease our anxiety. Help us to endure the time of uncertainty and give us strength to face the challenges ahead. Give us the assurance of your presence even in that time so that we can cling to your presence of hope and life shown to us through Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Thank you for joining us at All Places Together. We hope you experience God's love for you and the whole world in today's episode. Last week, this podcast hit a huge milestone. Thanks to you, dear listeners, we crossed over 10,000 podcast listens. I want to say thank you to each and every listener, to each and every guest, and everyone who has shared a story for a mixtape. Your listening, contributions, and engagement have helped this community grow and reach so many people. Over 10,000 people have heard that God loves them wherever, whoever, and however they are. And for this, I give deep, deep thanks. Thank you, as always, to our mission partners, the Virginia Synod, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Being church together is so important. Thank you to all of those who give financially to empower the ongoing work of APT. If you would like to make a financial gift to help us get to our next 10,000 listens, you can go through our website, allplacestogether.org. Scroll to the bottom where it says Give to Give Now. Click that button and you'll be redirected to our giving platform. If you need help setting up a stock transfer, setting up an ACH deposit, or you want to send a check, let me know and I can help you figure that out. Just shoot me an email at allplacestogether at gmail.com. Until next time, remember that God is with you and loves you wherever, whoever, and however you are. <laughs>